So I do have the privilege of introducing our speaker today, Russ Herzman. And uh, is Linda in this service? If you are, I'm going to find her. You have to look for her in, in the foyer after the service. But uh, Russ Herzman found Jesus Christ right here at Lake City Community Church in 1967, 50 years ago. All right. So he was a ninth grader at Hutloff Middle School when a friend from school invited him to Lake City. He found Christ here at Lake City. He found his call to missions at Lake City and was sent down to Multnomah University in Portland for training for ministry. While at Multnomah, he met his wife, Linda, who became his wife. And for the 41 years, Russ and Linda have served with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Throughout those 41 years, as a church family, we've supported them prayerfully and financially. And uh, for 21 of those years, they served in Africa, in the countries of Sudan and Kenya. Today, Russ is the chief operations officer for Wycliffe. In other words, he's the second in command with Wycliffe Bible Translators. God has blessed Russ and Linda with uh, almost 45 years of marriage and with three children and nine grandchildren and two dogs. So uh, it's such a delight to welcome Russ to our pulpit today. And before he comes, he has a short video that he's asked us to show. But when he does come after that, please welcome him with a, a big Lake City welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. It is so good to be home again. Good to have you home. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that was, uh, that was Billy Graham, you know, a whole bunch of years ago when we were celebrating our 50th anniversary. This is our 75th year as an organization, and uh, we kind of dug that out because nobody says it like Billy says it. You know, it's good to be back with you. This really is coming home. Uh, you know, other things that have marked our lives here at Lake City is that all three of our children were dedicated to the Lord here. One of them was baptized right here. Our daughter was married right here. Uh, we were commissioned to, to serve the Lord right here, and so this is great, great, great to be back and all. But I got to tell you, this is the first time I've been back since the orange pews have gone. <laughs> kind of throwing me here, you know, and all. That only took 50 years, too. I'm really grateful to uh, Pastor Jim, Pastor Reg, and all for allowing me to share, share the message with you this morning. We follow the news from Lake City uh, carefully as we get the weekly email and all and watch the videos of what's happening around here and, and all. And it's, it's big things happening around here. And look forward to next time coming here and seeing, you know, the whole new worship center and, and all. So God bless you guys as you continue to, to minister in his name. It's also just good to be out of Florida right now because, you know, Florida is just brutally hot right now. It's 95 degrees during the day and 95% humidity and you just breathe water, you know. So it's good to be here where we can actually feel cold. And tell, I tell you what, after all these years of Florida and Africa, 58 degrees is cold in our world. So three weeks ago I was in India. I, I get the privilege of traveling a lot, and, uh, but this was my first time in India. I've probably been in 60 or more nations in my, in my life, and, and, uh, but this was first time to get over to India, and I was helping to treat, teach a seminar for the leaders of Indian missions. And uh, there were 13 of them, the, the presidents and the board chairs and others there, and I was pretty amazed at what God is doing through his church in India. There was one, uh, one group where they're, they're reaching into the Banjara. Now, the Banjara are people that we know as gypsies. That's where they originally come from. They've spread all over the world. 
There was another group called the Bible Faith Mission, which is uh, reaching the Dalits. The Dalits are what we know as the untouchables. And they've planted over 200 churches just among the Dalits in recent years. There's another group called the Indian Evangelical Mission. They've got 980 Indian missionaries serving throughout India, taking the gospel into that huge place that has over 2.3 billion people. It's just amazing what God is doing through, through his church here and around the world, and it's just a privilege to be a part of it. And Linda and I have been at this now, like Jim said, for 41 years, and it's, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been a huge privilege to, to do that. Those 21 years that we spent in Africa were great years. We loved it. We loved Sudan. We loved uh, Kenya. And those of you who follow the news know that Sudan and South Sudan are in big trouble again and all, so we continue to pray for them. We returned to the United States in 1999 to take care of my mom. Those of you who have been around uh, for a while may remember Rita Barrow. She was here for a lot of years, and then she came to live with us in, in Florida. And, and uh, back in 1999, the other big thing that happened for Wycliffe is we adopted what we call Vision 2025. And that's where we believe that God will allow a Bible translation program to start in every language by the, that needs it by the year 2025. Now, in 1999, there were over 3,000 languages that still had no Bible translation. Now, 17 years later, we're down to about 1,600. That's a, that's a good start, you know, but there's more to go. That's 1,600. But we're watching things accelerate. There are more translations starting every year uh, as a result of what God is doing. So, so last year, 120 different languages, uh, were, they, they had Bible translations started in them. We really believe that, that God will allow, it, allow us to see a translation started by 2025 in every language. So besides being in India, about three months ago, back in May and June, I was also in uh, Solomon Islands and in Papua New Guinea. Solomon Islands is, uh, you know, Guadalcanal, if you followed World War II and all, you know that place and all. And there's about 22 languages still in Solomon Islands that still need a Bible translation to start. And in India, there's at least 54, it could be more, uh, that need to start. But Papua New Guinea... This is, this is not a big place. It's half an island, but there's over 900 languages in that place alone. 300 of them have Bibles. Another 300 have uh, Bible translations have been started, so there's work going on. But there's still another 300 yet to start. So there's plenty of work to do, plenty of challenge ahead, but we believe God will, will do this because we know that he wants everyone to have access to his love letter. So three Sundays ago, while I was in India, I, was, uh, I had the privilege of preaching at the Indira Nagar Methodist Church in Bangalore. Bangalore is just a small city in India, about 12 million people. And uh, they were having a missions month, and they assigned me that topic. The harvest is now, it's time to act. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for India, and Lake City's been sending out missionaries for decades... Let's do it here, too. While I was in the Solomon Islands, I went there to, to be there for the dedication of the Roviana Bible, the entire Bible, Old and New Testament. been a 35-year project to get that all translated. And uh, so we were having that Bible launch on May 23rd. 
115 years earlier on that very day, May 23rd, 1902, the gospel first arrived among the Rovianas. Eight missionaries landed there on that island. And uh, when I heard this, I thought, okay, eight missionaries landed there in 1902. They must have been European or British or Australian or something like that. No, they weren't. They were other Pacific Islanders. Because you see, a hundred years before that, the gospel had gone to places like Tonga and Samoa and Fiji. And the Pacific Islanders from those churches were now taking the gospel to other Pacific Islanders. So that 115 years later after they had landed, here we were in a church with over a thousand people in the church, hundreds more outside the church all waiting to get their Bible. And there are tens of thousands of Roviana believers uh, throughout that community. And that's what can happen when when God's word is obeyed and the gospel goes out. So our scripture text today is found in Matthew 9. It's Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. This is a pretty familiar text. You'll recognize it. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Would you pray with me? Father, we consecrate to you the remaining uh, moments of this uh, service and of this message, and we ask you to speak. We ask, Lord, that you would send out more laborers into the harvest field. It's your field. We give it to you. We give ourselves to you. Perhaps you would even raise somebody up from within this congregation this morning to, to take, the, take the gospel into their community, into the broader communities, maybe across the oceans. Mostly, Father, we want you just to be lifted up and glorified today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So if you look through the previous chapters of Matthew, you'll see that that Jesus has been doing exactly what verse 35 says. He's been going through all the towns and all the villages. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's healing the sick. He's healing those with diseases. And uh, he's been through Galilee. He's been to the Decapolis, which is the ten cities. He's been to Jerusalem and Judea. He's been over in Capernaum and then to Gadara. And at the beginning of uh, chapter 9, the first eight verses, we find that he's returned to Capernaum and in those first eight verses, he heals a, he heals a paralytic uh, man, a man who had been paralyzed. And uh, as he's leaving that encounter, he sees Matthew, the tax collector, and, and invites him to follow him. And Matthew does. In fact, they went to Matthew's house for, 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 to eat that day. And while, while he's at Matthew's house, has several encounters. Verse 10 says he's eating with these sinners and tax collectors. Those are the people who are despised by the religious elite. And then the religious elite, the Pharisees, they show up in verse 11 to 13. And uh, they come into the house and they question Jesus and try to trap him with their questions. Uh, Verses 14 to 11 describe how right after that, John's disciples show up and, and they're complaining. They're complaining to Jesus because... John's disciples are fasting, but Jesus and his disciples aren't. So they're belly aching about it. And right as that happens, in verse 18, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, shows up. 
And he's begging Jesus to come to his house because his daughter has died and he has nowhere else to turn. And uh, Jesus gets up in verse 19, Jesus gets up to go with Jairus, but then in the next three verses through verse 22, uh, a woman approaches Jesus from behind. She's had a problem with bleeding for over 12 years and she thinks, maybe if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And he feels power go out from him. And he turns and he sees her and he says, woman, your faith has healed you. And then he continues on to Jairus' place. In uh, verses 23 to 25, he gets to Jairus' house. He sees all these professional mourners who are wailing and carrying on, and he tells them to go away because he says, this little girl is not dead. She's just asleep. And he goes into her room and he raises her up. Verses 26 and through 31, he's leaving Jairus' home, and the news of these miracles is just spreading everywhere. And all of a sudden, there's two blind men following him, calling out for, to receive their sight. And what's he do? He gives them back their sight. Verses 32 to 33, as they're leaving him, another man is brought to him who's demon-possessed and can't speak. And he casts out the demon... And the, and the man speaks. And about that time, the Pharisees show up again in verse 34 and accuse him of being the prince of demons. You know, all this seems to have happened in a really short time, just in a matter of hours. And uh, Jesus looks up and he sees these crowds. And everywhere he goes now, there's going to be crowds. This, he's a celebrity. The news of what he's doing is just spreading like wildfire. And uh, he can't get away from everywhere he goes. They're there. They want to see him. They want to touch him. They want to talk to him. They want his attention. They want his help. And he just can't get away from the crowds. And, you know, I had to think, what would I do if I was in that situation? You know, I mentioned I was in Bangalore. And I want to tell you, the streets of Bangalore are crowded. You know, there's 12 million people that live in that city. And I think every one of them was on the street the day that I was wandering around. And it was... I just felt hemmed in, and I thought, wow, you know, how would I feel if I was Jesus and these crowds just wouldn't let me alone? You know, I just want to go and get some alone time somewhere, and they're there. They're where, wherever you turn, they're there. Would I be frustrated? Would I be angry? Would I just want to give up? And, uh, you know, after that week in Bangalore, I realized that, yeah, I, I could see myself having those kind of reactions. But look at what Jesus does. In verse 36, he looks up and he sees the crowds. And what does he say? He says, the, the verse says, when, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw those crowds. He saw the people in those crowds. He saw the individuals. He saw people who had sicknesses that no one could heal. He saw people who had lost loved ones. He saw, he saw people were being tormented by Satan. They were being attacked and tormented. He, he saw people who were reaching the end of their hope and the end of, they were just hopeless and helpless at that point. And uh, he saw people who were just being looked down upon because of their station in life or because of their work. And, the, and, and what did he do? He had compassion on them. He says they're sheep without a shepherd. Have you ever seen a flock of sheep without a shepherd? A flock of sheep without a shepherd are danger. They're danger to themselves. They'll wander off. They'll wander anywhere. They can be in a good place where there's water and grass, and they'll wander into dry, dirty, dusty places, and they can die. 
They can wander into places where there's wild animals and get injured. They can wander into places where the ground is treacherous and, and be injured. Sheep without a shepherd, they're in trouble. And they need a shepherd, someone to watch over them, someone to guide them into safe places, someone to get them food and water, and, and someone to protect them from others, and really someone to protect them from themselves. And Jesus knew who he was. In John 10, we read that Jesus was the good shepherd. Jesus knew that about himself. He knew he was what the crowds needed. He knew that those individuals needed Jesus to watch over them and to protect them. Jesus knew that uh, he need, they needed him to care for them, to help them to, to live and to thrive, to heal them, to cast out their demons. And, and just he need, they needed him to keep them from being harassed and helpless. And so what does a good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. Well, Jesus has been traveling around that region doing all of that, just laying down himself for, for the people in those towns and villages. But everywhere he went, there were more and more people. The crowds got bigger, sick, sick without number, showing up. And everywhere he went, people turned to him, whether they were tax collectors or synagogue rulers or people who were ill or blind who received their sight, the mute who spoke, the demons, the demon-possessed who were set free. But the crowds just grew and the needs were relentless. It just got bigger and bigger. And uh, there was just more need than Jesus as, as one individual person could handle. There was this massive shepherdless flock. And after that... And they, and they were that harvest field. They were the ones who were ready for the shepherd. After lives of harassment and helplessness, they were ready for that guiding, caring hand of the good shepherd. So he turns to his disciples. Now his disciples, they're just people like you and me. People who, at the end of the day, you know, they'd had a long day. They want to go to Matthew's house, have a little meal, a little quiet. Go get some rest and everything. And, and what happens? Everything just starts streaming on after that. And, and so they're, they're probably feeling a little bit uh, overwhelmed. And Jesus says to them, hey, look up. Look at this. See these folks? This is a, an abundant harvest. It's plentiful. There's so much harvest, we can't gather it all in. And everything we do, it's not going to be enough. So rather than getting discouraged and downcast about this or tired or anger or anything like that, let's turn to the Lord of the harvest because you know what? That's his harvest field. He wants that harvest brought in. Let's turn to him and ask him to send out more laborers, more workers into the field. So by that time, you know, besides the 12 apostles, there's also a lot of other followers of Jesus, but there still aren't enough of them. And Jesus just redirects their attention to the Lord of the harvest. And that brings us to really the crux of, uh, of what this is all about today. He brings us to a, a time to act. And part of that acting is to ask, and part of it's to go. Ask the Lord of the harvest. This is the ministry of prayer. I have to ask myself often, am I praying for the people in my life who, who are shepherdless? Am I praying for the communities around me? Am I praying for those who, who need that good shepherd? That's what God wants of me. You know, and, 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 and we can do this 
One of the, one of the ways that I do it is, um, you know, Wycliffe provides this for me. It's called the finish line. Actually, anybody can get it. It's just a, a month-by-month thing of praying for a different language group every week, a different language group that needs the scriptures and all. And, and so, so every, every morning I just pull it out of my Bible and I pray for a group. This morning I prayed for the, a group called the Manjaku of uh, Guinea-Bissau, Africa. 285,000 people who, who, need, who need to follow Jesus. And uh, they've actually received their Bible last November. And now they're working on the Old Testament. So I'm praying for them that, uh, that there'll be an abundant harvest there. I know a woman in, uh, in Oregon. Her name's Hattie. She's retired. I mean, she's in her 90s. She's well retired. Didn't get around much anymore. Can't get out very often. But God has placed it on her heart to pray for people. And so she prays for 800 language groups every day. Mentions of my name. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into those language groups so that they too can know the, the Lord of the harvest, that they too can know that good shepherd. You know, praying is something that we can all do. It's, it's a great equalizer among followers of Christ because it doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what you do, what your education is, anything. We can all pray and God expects us to pray. And, you know, here, here's the amazing thing. God wants us to pray, he commands us to pray, and he listens to us. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe, the omnipotent God, wants to hear from you and me. And he does things as a result. He answers those prayers. Just recently I heard a really, uh, a really great quote from Charles Spurgeon, an old preacher, that said, Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. Kind of think about that a little bit. Prayer is the slender nerve. It's, you know, it's not a big thing for us to pray. But somehow or another, it moves God. So if you want to change the world, pray. And God can change the world through your prayers. Ask him to send out more workers into the harvest field. Now, in order to send out more workers, there've got to be people who are willing to go. Now, that's kind of implied in this passage, but if you're acquainted with Matthew 28, the, the Great Commission, verses 19 20 says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The real command there is make disciples. It's not go. A better translation of that would be, while you are going, make disciples. Because, you know, we're always going. We go to work. We go to where we go to school. We go to our community. We go, we go, we go, we go. And, uh, but what God wants us to do is be making disciples while we're going. And making disciples, that's just bringing in that harvest. That's introducing the people in our lives to the Good Shepherd. It's the way we live our lives. It's the words we communicate with. You know, there are some people who are pastors and teachers and missionaries and so forth, but this command isn't just for those of us who have a vocation like that. This is for all of us while we're going to be making disciples. Think about the people in your lives, especially those who are not believers. Those are the part of the harvest field that God has placed right there in your life and you in their life. 
thinking about them, you know, are they harassed? Are, are they helpless? Are they in need of a savior? And if, uh, if you're there, you may be the only person that God uh, brings into their life that can, can share with them the good news about the good shepherd. Many years ago, right here at Lake City, there was a, a group of young men. They were, there were about 20 of them who were uh, band members in the Air Force Band out at, out at McCord. And uh, some of you who have been around may remember these guys. At the time, they were all believers, but when it started out, there was only one believer among that band. And he was a guy who, he just started praying for the harvest field he was in, and he was in this band. And uh, he was praying, and then one day, he was at a store with another guy from the band, and they were, they were checking out, and he was paying for his stuff, and the lady who was helping him gave him back too much change. And he noticed it, so he said to her, I'm sorry, you've given me back too much change. He gave it back to her, and, and she made it right. And, and then as they were leaving, this, this friend who wasn't a believer says to him, what in the world did you do that for? You know, we're just poor GIs. You know, we need that money. That was free money. And, and this Christian man, Christian young guy says to him, you know, because of my Christian faith, I just couldn't do that. It would have been dishonest. And besides, she'd have gotten in trouble at the end of the day and, and all. And his unbelieving friend was so impressed by his integrity. He said, what makes you so different? And uh, the guy shared his Christian testimony with him and his friend became a Christ follower. And then the two of them began praying and praying for that harvest field, that band. And within months, 20 of these guys had become Christians. Well, that's the kind of thing that happens all over the world. It happens here in, in uh, Lakewood. It happens in the States. It happens all over the world as people pray and go. And, uh, you know, this could be happening right here in, in your community, uh, even right now. There's an opportunity for you. You know that you've had your summer break and all. You're getting, getting ready for the small groups to start again. And... Uh, I want to encourage you to join a small group. Linda and I are great believers in small groups. We love the one that we're in down in Orlando. But uh, the small groups that are starting up need leaders. And while, while I was in the, uh, in the foyer earlier, I picked up the, the small group brochure for Lake City, and, and I want to read you what the mission statement is. It says, Our mission is to make disciples who make disciples in relational environments. That's kind of what we've been talking about, isn't it? Making disciples. Well, there's need for leaders. And so next, next, to, next Tuesday, next Sunday, uh, at 10.30, there's going to be a time for connecting and training for people who already are leaders or who would, might like to be leaders. If you're interested in doing that, I encourage you to uh, get together with Reg, talk to Reg and all, and show up at that meeting. God is doing amazing things around the world today here, right here locally and around the world, and, and I want to encourage you to be a part of it because it's a huge blessing. I encourage you to pray, and I encourage you to go and make disciples. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us this huge privilege of serving you and serving with you because really this is your work. This is your harvest field, but we're asking you to send out more workers. And if it's us, then let us go, Lord. Mostly, Father, we want you to be glorified, we want you to be lifted up, that your name might be made famous throughout this community. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to spend these moments together in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you.